I'm James Lawler, and you are listening to Climate Now. This is the second episode in our Decarbonizing Road Transport series, which is co-hosted by Darren Howe, who is a senior charging manager at Cruise and a former applications engineer at Tesla. Today, Darren and I are speaking with Dave Rubin, who is the head of policy research at Cruise. So Darren, since you're also at Cruise, I was thinking that maybe we could start out with how you ended up there. What led you down the path to autonomous vehicles? Yeah, thanks, James. I really come into this from a climate and energy background. Uh, I started out in the solar industry working on power electronics and then joined Tesla working on their EV charging team, so responsible for sort of network and product design. And that's the angle I've uh, taken coming into Cruise. Cruise is obviously an autonomous vehicle company, but what sets it apart from many others is it's an all-electric autonomous vehicle company. So this presents a variety of challenges that are really interesting, but really promising for the industry. Once you have this centralized fleet of autonomous vehicles, there's this potential to use it as a really strong lever to accelerate deployment of EV infrastructure and to experiment with new approaches that people have talked about for years, like smart charging. So that's really why I'm at, at Cruise. Since you work with him, uh, what can you tell us about Dave Rupin and, and what we'll be speaking about today? Yeah, well, Dave is an integral part of our government affairs team. Now, this team is responsible for um, promoting all of the autonomous vehicle regulations and policies that Cruise believes is important for the industry. But again, because Cruise is a all-electric fleet, he's also involved in discussing the climate benefits and pushing the clean mileage standards involved with ride-sharing applications. So today we can explore with Dave the climate benefits of transitioning rideshare and delivery vehicles to electric platforms, and then also discuss those benefits and the feasibility of transitioning this industry to autonomy. Great. And with that intro, Dave, welcome to Climate Now. L let's start with your background. How did you get to where you are today in your career? Awesome. Well, it's great to be here uh, and joining you, James and, and Darren. It's interesting when I think about my background and how I found my way into the world of electric and autonomous vehicles. I spent the better part of uh, eight years in strategic management consulting in, in Washington, D.C., uh, and I focused a lot of my time working with companies in the transportation, aerospace, and defense world, mostly helping them navigate political risk and identify kind of market development opportunities. And I saw this opportunity with Cruise come along. I had a former colleague of mine who helped run international affairs for Cruise at the time. And I'd always had a background in environment and transportation, energy. And I saw this really interesting and unique opportunity to take some of these hard skills that I developed in thinking through you know, nascent political challenges and policy hurdles and opportunities for new companies and marry it with you know strong passion and, and interest that I had in um, the environment and transportation and energy. And so I kind of walked into Cruise. That was three years ago. And since then, it's been a pretty good ride. I'm the head of policy research for the government affairs team, and it's uh, tremendously exciting for me. Can you share a bit more how this work at Cruise differs from what you've done before? You know, I worked a lot with folks in, let's say, traditional transportation and aerospace uh, sectors. Regulation for both of those industries has really been very much set, right? That there is a, a clear and expected way uh, of approaching certain policy issues, of engaging with regulators, laws are on the books, right? But in contrast with autonomous vehicles, things are still being settled and things are, are still being crafted as, as we speak, right? There is 
uh, policy and regulation that's being formulated. Uh, we just saw that the first rule set being passed by the state of California, for example, for autonomous vehicles in October of 2020. And so new laws for autonomous vehicles are in motion. We're still waiting on, on federal legislation for autonomous vehicles. And so in contrast to where I was previously in my career, this has been a really unique opportunity to kind of be in the fray and help work hand in hand with third parties, regulators, policymakers to help share Cruz's vision um, for the future of transportation, as well as work hand in hand to try to find the, the best and most optimal policy outcomes for our technology uh, while advancing state and federal goals for cleaner and, and safer transportation as well. Right. So I'd love to just start with the term you mentioned, which is the subject of, the, of, of this conversation, autonomous vehicles. Can, would you mind just defining what that means for us? Is an AV or autonomous vehicle basically the same thing as a souped up version of Tesla's auto drive you know, feature? What, what, what is an AV? They're, they're rooted in the same concept, which is that the vehicle itself is able to take over certain driving functions that ultimately reduces the amount of attention and control required by the human operator. But really what we're talking about is two fundamentally and completely different approaches to the technology from the jump, right? So you brought up Tesla, their autopilot feature, for example, or even advanced driver assist still requires, number one, a human operator in the vehicle. Number two, your attention and, and hands ideally on the wheel, right? and that you need to be ready to take over at any given time. What we call that in the industry is driver assist technology. In contrast to that, what Cruise is developing and, and others in this space is what is often referred to as AVs. This is what we think of as self-driving cars, right? And so what, what is the current state of the Cruise technology? So we've made tremendous progress since we got started in 2013, eight years ago. We have received permits from the state of California to be able to test driverlessly within San Francisco. And we're actively using that permit to do so. So as we speak, there are fully autonomous cruise vehicles based on the, the Chevrolet Bolt. Uh, and they're driving around um, San Francisco without a driver. And at the moment, also transporting employees of cruise as well as we do kind of the initial steps towards commercialization. You guys are both employees of, of Cruise. Have you been driven around by a Cruise vehicle? And how does that feel? I have, both with a driver and without. The first time I got in a car, this was uh, about a year after I joined, was with two what we call AVTOs, uh, autonomous vehicle training operators in the vehicle. One is, you know, got their hands on the wheel and the other was a, a note taker. And I was blown away by the capability, but also there's kind of a wow factor involved, right? Even if there is a driver in the front seat, you're still like, oh man, right? This, this car is driving itself. And there were certain things that I thought were just so tremendously cool and, and really indicative to me of the embeddedness of how the vehicle thinks about safety. Uh, for example, we were going down a street with a bike lane, right? And all humans suffer blind spots, including in vehicles. <laughs> and I looked behind me because we had kind of nudged over a little bit in our lane and behind the C pillar, right in the back of the car, there was two cyclists, right? But kind of tucked back there. I had no idea they were there and the AVTOs probably didn't see them either. But the fact that our vehicles have sensors all the way around, we're able to detect this cyclist. That was really, really cool. Uh, and the second time for me was without a driver 
And it was when we started doing closed course testing in San Francisco. I was actually like one of the first cruise employees to, to hop in the car without a driver in it. And again, it was very new, right? Terrifying. At first. Yeah. But within like two laps of the track, I was like, oh, okay, this is, this is normal. Right. Right. And that's what you ultimately want. You want someone to feel like this is boring because that's an indication of safety. But Darren, I don't know uh, if you've had the chance yeah. to ride. I have only done it once. And apparently talking to people who have done it even before, there's been a market improvement in the performance. I would say the thing that strikes me is that there are things that it does extremely well. And then there are obviously things that you know it still struggles to do and which Cruise is working on. But in terms of what I found really interesting was just the difference in perception when you have an autonomous vehicle. So when I have an Uber driver with a driver in the front, I kind of accept the fact that he, he or she's not going to drive perfectly, that there's going to be starts and stops and hard stops and jerkiness and sudden accelerations to cut in front of somebody. And I'm sort of like, ah, it's okay. I know it's an Uber driver. In the cruise vehicle, it was so smooth. And that's what struck me as well. And I just came to realize that, you know, what cruise is building is tough because it needs to not be as good as a human Uber driver. It needs to be better. Would love to sort of look at the the marketplace that Cruise will be entering. Um, could you give us a sense, Dave, in terms of the EV market? How many EVs are on the road today, roughly? And and do you have a sense of the estimates for growth in that market in terms of cars on the road? Yeah, electric vehicles are very clearly part of the zeitgeist right now, and they should be. It's one of our most potent tools for addressing climate change. But regardless of the focus on these vehicle opportunities here, you know, they still only represent about 1% of all cars on the road today, despite the tremendous growth in places like California, which is where we're based, and pretty significant shifts within both industry and and the political winds to both support and, and accommodate that growth. And so, you know, as we think about the ramp rate to adoption, there's obviously some clear targets that have been laid out, which industry and consumers will track towards, right? Um, the top level one from our perspective is Governor Newsom's goals for 2030, I believe, in California uh, for full SAV adoption, 2035, excuse me. And President Biden, of course, uh, also released his own targets for 2030 for half of all new car sales to be zero emission. That was by 2030. And we've, we've seen similar numbers in the autonomous vehicle space. There is a bill uh, that was signed here in California called SB 500 earlier this year to make all autonomous vehicles electric by 2030. But to answer your question, when we think about how do we get to a saturation point, to a place where there is truly a critical mass for electric vehicles, it's going to require not only the right regulatory landscape, things like those targets that I was talking about, be it at the state or federal level, but it's going to take infrastructure, specifically charging, it's going to take vehicle affordability, which costs of batteries and therefore electric vehicles are coming down. But at the same time, there are major concerns about supply chain management, the chip shortage issue, so that's hitting EV production. But at the same time, let's go back to that 1% number, right? Like we can have all the right ducks in a row, but it still could take time. And that's where a company like Cruise is so excited to kind of put ourselves in the mix. Because our vision for self-driving, fully electric, and shared vehicles is such a unique opportunity to bridge access for the public to cleaner miles. You don't have to buy an EV. You don't have to install a charger at your own home. 
to take a cruise car. And that's what's so exciting for us, right? Is regardless of your interest or your desire or your ability to purchase an electric vehicle, either as a second car or to replace one that you already have, or you may not even have a car, we kind of democratize access to the EV. You started touching on this a bit when you said people may not even need a car, but can still experience electric miles. So let's talk a little bit about traditional ride hailing, right? And it's so funny that we call it traditional because it's really only happened within the last 10 years. What is the adoption of EVs like in traditional ride hailing? How has that progress been both on the policy front and actually on the ground? EVs are really almost the perfect use case for ride sharing in a lot of ways. Looking at California as an example, there's a new regulation in place here called the Clean Mile Standard which is requiring, I think it's 90% of ride-sharing vehicles become electric by 2030 in the state of California. That's through smart policy creation, right? And so looking beyond the personal vehicle sector, there's still, of course, a role for regulatory regimes and policy incentives to encourage EV adoption. But looking at the the use case for ride-sharing EVs in particular, from a driver's perspective, it actually makes a lot of sense, right? Number one, the vehicles are lower maintenance, typically and typically have lower repair costs. There's fewer moving parts in an EV, first of all. And so uh, as a result, you don't have to change your oil as much. You don't have to change the transmission fluid, things like that. And so those kind of reduce the burden um, on the driver, which is, which is really great. Also across the nation right now, and especially in California. And so electricity is relatively speaking, a much more affordable fuel for a rideshare driver, given um, how expensive gas is right now. And that cost does uh, go down significantly too, if a rideshare driver is able to take advantage of certain rates, be it charging at home, which might be more affordable than um, a DC fast charger in the middle of the city, or charging during off-peak hours um, when demand for electricity isn't super high, the price of electricity might be even lower. And so eventually we're hoping for a place where the cost parity, both clear vehicle costs as well as the refueling times. I think that's, that is a big concern that we're hearing from ride sharing drivers generally is there are a lot of beneficial opportunities for uh, using an EV for ride sharing, but it takes too long to charge the car. What we're hoping for is enough technological advancement where you can refuel with electricity, maybe not as quick as it takes to fill a gas tank, but we're pretty darn close. And I think that's when we're really going to see that major tipping point. And Dave, I can just ch- chime in here a little briefly to talk about the charging side of things. Yeah. I mean, that, I think that is also an interesting use case for autonomy because we don't have uh, or we won't have drivers that have certain preferences on when they get home to their families and when they want to be sitting at a charging station. Managing a fleet that can charge during those times when other people aren't charging because no one wants to be charging at that times could be a useful way of increasing electric miles without some of these constraints. I want to talk a little bit about some of these studies have been performed that suggest that rideshare companies are actually generating more pollution and congestion and societal cost based on things like deadhead miles than they had initially hoped. And yeah. Darren, what's a deadhead mile? Sorry, just for people who don't oh, yeah. may not know. So a deadhead mile is basically when you're driving around without a passenger in order to pick up the next one. So you're in between productive rides. So I'm wondering... We talked a little bit about how ride hail is you know, the perfect use case for electrification because you drive a lot more miles, less maintenance, but is it fundamentally better than say just electrifying private vehicles? And I know that Darren has 
you've published a couple things on this question. What is the claim in terms of why ride healing platforms generate more emissions? I think what people have found on the ground is that people don't replace private ownership with ride hail, they supplement it. So they're still buying their own vehicle. And then although these drivers are picking up a lot more passengers, oftentimes they're driving, you know, hours out of their way to pick up the first passenger and then between passenger rides, like circling around the block, waiting for their next passenger. So that, those are all emissions that are still coming out. There's a lot of nuances on where they might be better, but by and large, they assumed it was uh, actually worse. You still have this utilization question, right? How many of your miles are deadhead miles? Because even if your energy is coming from the grid through electricity, some of that electricity is not 100% clean. So there is this tipping point where if you can increase your utilization really well and reduce your deadhead miles, which might be more feasible with an autonomous platform that you can actually have a much better benefit compared to just electrifying traditional TNC. When we think about the fundamentals, it really comes down to how many miles are driven, the VMT, vehicle miles traveled, and what is the carbon intensity of the fuel that you're using to drive that car. And by carbon intensity, we mean how many emissions are generated to move you from A to B, right? So the study that, that you guys are referencing, there's been a couple that have showed that ride-sharing vehicles do produce more pollution than the trips that they displace. And I think that kind of makes sense, right, to, to Darren's point. If you're going one mile, um, from your house to the store. And then you think about an Uber providing that same trip for you. Well, they might drive a quarter mile to come pick you up, then drive the mile, and then maybe drive another quarter mile to go pick somebody else up. And so that's 1.5 miles versus the one mile that it would take to drive you on your own. And looking at the same platform, gas to gas, that's obviously more emissions to take it with, a, with an Uber or a Lyft. But conversely, what if those miles were, were driven by electric vehicles? And that's really where the crux of our value add and more broadly EV ride sharing is, especially for our case, when those miles are, are powered by fully renewable electricity, which would reduce the emissions to zero. UC Davis has done some really great research uh, to try to understand what is the emissions benefit of electrifying those TNC vehicles or, or ride-sharing vehicles and comparing those emissions against both personal gas-powered vehicles as well as even personal EVs. And what they found was, was really actually quite stunning. You know, back to my original point, it's about the number of miles that you drive and how dirty the fuel is. One ride-sharing vehicle has the same emissions-reducing impact as three people buying their own personal EVs. And so you can really understand that there's a very strong policy incentive to get gas-powered ride-sharing vehicles off the road and to replace them with EVs. Could we dive a little bit deeper into that? Because I know, James, you know, your podcast is all about getting deep into the weeds of things. But when we talk about Powered by Renewable, how is that done today for Cruises Fleet? What are the programs that we have and where can we continue to improve from what we've accomplished so far? Great question. In 2020, we made the decision to power a fleet with fully renewable power. And what we mean by that is unless you build your own power transmission lines, it is very difficult to trace electricity from, from its source to its end use, right? Because everything is, of course, on a grid. And so there's a really great alternative tool to that, which we 
collectively referred to as Renewable Energy Credits, or RECs. And so across the U.S., when a renewable energy producer, be it a solar panel owner or someone who owns a, a wind turbine, generates power, they also generate these tradable credits, these RECs, that represent a, a certain volume of renewable energy that's put on the grid. And they become sort of tradable currency in a lot of ways. The RECs that are generated by that solar panel or by that wind turbine can be purchased by a company like Cruise, for example, to then hold and retire based on our use of electricity. And we would, let's say, you know, we use one megawatt hour of, of electricity. Well, we would buy one megawatt hours worth of RECs and retire them at the same time. And we would show that uh, we are actually powered by renewables because we are kind of drawing that direct financial and obligatory connection to the producer. And so that's kind of how we jumped into the renewable space. But earlier this summer, actually, in late August, we launched a new partnership called Farm to Fleet, where rather than kind of buying these wrecks on the open market, we realized, hey, look, our fleet needs a lot of energy. And we also, from our perspective, stand for something really cool, which is this transformative vision for transportation, a great, huge emphasis on sustainability. Can we find partners in this space that share our values? And we started working with a couple of partners and found two family-owned farms in the Central Valley, Sundale Vineyards and Moonlight, that respectively grow grapes uh, and citrus, as well as stone fruits. And these two family-owned farms who've been around for 100 years, respectively, had invested in solar panels and were generating electricity on site and were looking to sell their own wrecks. And so we kind of put the pieces together and thought, look, like, we have an opportunity to marry two very iconic industries for California, tech and agriculture, and do so in a way that allows these local communities hundreds of miles away from San Francisco to share in the benefits of us charging our vehicles through direct financial support at a time when uh, a lot of farmers in California are experiencing drought. There's, of course, concerns of wildfire and the risks associated with that. And so I think a premium placed on generating non-farm income at this time as a supplement. And so we're, we're very pleased to be able to support that as well. So Dave, we talked a little bit about the value from an emission standpoint of going from EVs like personal vehicles to a ride-sharing EV, that it's roughly one to three in terms of emissions benefits. What does it look like then when we go from ride-sharing EV to AV? What are the further emissions benefits of utilizing an autonomous vehicle fleet and how should we think about that? I think that's really where it's going to be transformative from my perspective. There's already clear benefits for that electric vehicle adoption. But when you remove the driver from the vehicle, the calculus can change pretty dramatically, right? There's, of course, numerous benefits outside the, the scope of this particular conversation on road safety possibly even congestion reduction. But speaking specifically on the environmental and sustainability side of things, once you remove the driver from the car and, and provide the vehicle its own ability to navigate around and to manage certain actions on its own, suddenly it becomes very, very transformative. I think a couple of things immediately come to mind for me here. Number one is you can program an autonomous vehicle or, or manage the fleet in such a way where 
it can drive to reduce the amount of energy that it uses, right? Doing things like avoiding high grade hills, which of course are a major drain on the battery. When there isn't a passenger in the vehicle, driving at slower than average speeds to reduce energy use, driving in a more predictable way, less stop and go sort of jackrabbit starts, right? Uh, that can also uh, improve energy efficiency and ultimately improve emissions. But thinking to the future as well, AVs, especially electric AVs, are more or less power plants on wheels, right? If they have the ability to discharge onto the grid, a far enough future scenario, you could imagine AVs plugging back into the grid when electricity prices are quite high to help sort of serve as an ancillary service for grid operations or thinking about um, the realities of climate change, there will be further disruptions to the grid, be it from natural disasters uh, like flooding, freezes or snowstorms, ice storms, as well as fire. Autonomous vehicles, given the charge that they would have, would be able to serve sort of as a tool for resiliency, helping to provide backup power to local communities, plugging into local distribution networks, providing pretty vital electricity to do things like keep CPAP machines running, right? Or to help with hospitals or even basic things like providing emergency medical services with electricity to provide basic services for communities in need during that time. Let's imagine then a future with more electric vehicles and more electric autonomous vehicles in particular. What do you think charging looks like? I spent a lot of time thinking about this, but I would love Aaron's thoughts here as well. When you think about charging today, especially for human-driven vehicles, there is an emphasis on, I guess in some ways, replicating the gas station model, which is fundamentally driven by you need space available for the public. No one likes to wait online for a gas pump. There's a strong emphasis on getting as many chargers in the ground as possible. But in the future with more autonomous vehicles, especially if they're operated as fleets, which we expect them to be for some time, fleets need predictability. If you are owning and operating the charging infrastructure yourself, you need to make sure that you're getting the most bang for your buck, so to speak, right? And so you need what's called high utilization of chargers, getting as many vehicles in and out of that charging space as quickly as you can and as efficiently as you can to make the most productive use of that charger. And so when we think about what the future might look like, from our perspective, you know, not dissimilar from sort of the way that, that airlines operate today, where you have sort of like a central charging depot, where you might co-locate a number of fast charging stations with vehicle cleaning, um, sensor cleaning and calibration. And then at the same time, you might have these sort of satellite charging stations uh, across the city. Yeah. Actually, you saying that, it's very fun to kind of imagine what that picture is actually like, because but you, you set your fleet loose and you'll quickly see where there are concentrations of pickups and drop-offs. And you could almost conceive of like a mobile charging infrastructure that kind of moves to where there are dead zones in this whole pattern and sets up there. And like a pop-up restaurant model almost. Like pop-up charging. I, I, love, I love these ideas. And actually, I can definitely see use cases where those would make a lot of sense, right? One of the challenges is that the grid is difficult to build out, right? And it's expensive and it takes a long time. So when we are about to get more deployment of electric vehicles, the manufacturers have cars coming up, but where is that charging infrastructure? Having some way to rapidly deploy and maybe even redeploy 
the charging infrastructure is an interesting use case that we need to tackle. But I want to take a step back and highlight just the general challenge behind charging. So if we take a look, one of the big challenges is that we don't have enough public charging. So when electric vehicle companies like Tesla first started, we were all saying, hey, don't worry about the gas station, charge at home, right? Which is more convenient because you don't have to spend any time. You go at home, you plug it in, go do your own things. It doesn't matter if it takes six hours, it's charged when you leave in the morning. But the fact is that 40% of Americans don't have access to their own home charging. So how do you go help those folks electrify? You're going to need public charging infrastructure. If you take a look at the amount of investment that has happened in this space, studies have shown that it's going to take somewhere between 50 to 60 billion in the U.S. alone to accommodate EV growth by 2030. And originally, the Biden administration proposed 15 billion. I believe that's now been cut in half to 7 billion. So that is going to have to stimulate so much extra private dollars to go to work. So where does Cruise fit into all of this? I think it's two pieces. The first one is just infrastructure deployment and pulling that forward. As Dave alluded to, utilization is the big challenge here. So you've got charging operators who are thrilled if they can get their charging infrastructure utilized 15 to 20% of the time. That's amazing for them. That's really sucky, right? That's, that's pretty bad. Yeah. So if you think about what crews can do with an autonomous fleet that can charge, say, at night, when no one else is going to be going out and charging. We can boost those utilization numbers to 30, 40, 50, maybe, uh, potentially even higher. That all of a sudden flips those economics where an unprofitable station becomes profitable. So we can actually accelerate the build out of this. And that's one of the reasons I'm very excited to be working on this stuff at Cruise. Yeah. And then the second piece is the operational side. You can actually kind of apply the 80-20 rule here. Sometimes you get 80% of the benefit just by being a smart consumer of electricity. How do you make sure you're drawing electricity down when prices are cheap and avoid charging when there are strains on the grid, like it's a super hot day and everyone's using AC. So those are things that Autonomous Fleet, again, has a much larger you know, kind of lever to, uh, to apply here. A colleague of mine brought up this really great point, which is like, imagine a world where there's a bunch of DC fast chargers in front of a Whole Foods and we've arranged an agreement where Cruise is able to access those DC fast chargers, engaging with, let's say, ChargePoint or EVgo, and of course, with, with, with the Whole Foods. And so we've got, let's say, got five vehicles there. Well, let's say a sudden person drives up and wants to charge their EV there. You could imagine a future scenario where through some clever programming and, and just a user function, that personal human-driven EV could indicate, I need to charge now. And suddenly those AVs pull out of their spaces and all leave simultaneously. You have this ability to like very deliberately and in like this really cool and unique concerted way. Yeah. Make better use of infrastructure simply right. because the, the cars are driverless. That's really awesome. It's really fun to think about. And it feels quite inevitable on some, in some level, doesn't it? I mean, I'm not sure if that's because we've been preconditioned by sci-fi <laughs> movies that it feels this way or if it's actually makes some deeper level of sense, but you could totally imagine what you're saying, I think, which is why you guys work there, I guess. <laughs> um, I just want to ask you one more question and then wrap up. This is going to be a fun question, but we've all heard all of those country songs about my dusty truck, basically. <laughs> Americans love their cars and your company's proposing that we get rid of that relationship or dr drastically change that relationship? You think that's a big deal or not? <laughs> I think it, I think it does absolutely matter. Look at the end of the day, Americans love cars. 
and that will be true um, for the foreseeable future. But what's important to recognize here is that we view ourselves as building on that proud tradition, right? We're not talking about taking people's cars away at the end of the day. And I think that's the very important distinction to make here. We are talking about a technology that provides greater economic mobility, greater environmental benefits, that allows you to access more places, connect to more people, and really expand the way that we think about giving people time back and really kind of reclaiming transportation along the way. The automobile has got us pretty far in the United States, and it has not come without significant challenges, of course, in everything we've talked about from emissions to equity challenges to, of course, traffic violence in and of itself. But we are standing at the edge of a really exciting shift where we will be able to provide that same amount of economic social mobility while doing so in a cleaner, safer, and more accessible way. Yeah. I think it's also worth thinking about how for all of the country songs and all of the identification with trucks, the Model A was from like early 1900s, right? So this really isn't that old that we've had dusty trucks. (laughs) (laughs) And (laughs) it's also really not that long ago that that we first started using oil. We were talking about a, a late 1800s technology that took the world by storm. So we do things to pretty quickly as human beings, and we can change our minds quickly. So who knows, maybe we'll be writing songs about our autonomous vehicle fleet before too long. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, Dave, thank you so much for for joining us. This has been a really fascinating conversation. We're really pleased to, to have you on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for joining us. It was my pleasure. Thanks, James, and thanks, Darren. That was Dave Rubin, the head of policy research at Cruz. Really very interesting discussion there. You know, one of the things, Darren, I, I was wondering if you could talk, just expand a little bit on or give your, your own thoughts on this concept of, of Cruz, you know, relying on renewable energy credits or RECs to, you know, offset emissions. You know, obviously that's that's different from relying on 100% renewable energy, but it's a little bit nuanced in terms of the way in which that's that's different, like claiming zero emissions through RECs versus zero emissions because we use only solar power. Or yeah. what do you, how does that work? Yeah, certainly. And I feel like some of the guests you've had before on your show, James, will probably be able to speak to this better than I can. But essentially, RECs is just an accounting phenomenon. Whenever you produce a certain block or quantity of renewable energy, you can also um, basically have a credit tied to that, a renewable energy credit tied to that. And those credits can then be traded in a a separate market. And at some point, one end buyer of those RECs will then retire that accounting lock and then say, okay, no one can buy or sell this anymore. I retired it and I get the credit for saying I used renewable energy for my energy here. So in a way, it's a way to just uh, promote the deployment and consumption of renewable energy, but how it's different from what companies like Microsoft and Alphabet are trying to do is you're not really guaranteeing you're using renewable energy at all times of the day. You can still be getting natural gas electricity. You can still be getting coal electricity. You're simply saying, oh, but I also paid for the deployment and consumption of renewable energy somewhere, some other time. So, you know, it's definitely a really positive step forward and it's been really helpful in getting the deployment of solar and wind resources online. Um, but I would see it as kind of a halfway stepping stone. 
Mm-hmm. So really the key thing is that if you purchase a REC, you're promoting the development of renewable energy, really. That's right. I guess the, the, the note to our listeners is that the word, you should always be careful with the word offset. And you should really understand what exactly that means and, and in, in what context it's being used because it is thrown around a lot. Another question I have thinking about our conversation is, Dave said we're not talking about taking people's cars away. W- what do you think about that? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, let me just level set this by saying I love driving. <laughs> I, it's it's funny. A lot of people who work at Cruise actually really enjoy cars and driving. I think that's why they're attracted to this industry. But I do think there's a difference in terms of when and where you drive. So when we take a look at Cruise's uh, target markets, they're really talking about robo-taxi or delivery applications in dense urban environments. And I'm pretty sure that anyone who really enjoys driving on the open road on a road trip does not have the same level of enjoyment going up and down the clogged streets of San Francisco. So personally, you know, I really dislike having to drive into San Francisco, try to find parking, etc. I would much rather, you know, take public transit up there. And then once I go there, be able to leverage an autonomous uh, vehicle platform to get around. I think something else that is worth considering is once we have a, say, electric autonomous ride hail service that allows people to eliminate the parking and self-driving into city centers, maybe that will open up the design parameters of, of, of a city to be more friendly to some of these micromobility options if you don't want to take an autonomous vehicle, right? So if I take, you know, I, I biked in New York City when I was there. And while there are some really nice bike paths, I would say at least 50% of the time, I am right next to a giant car <laughs> as I'm going, you know, 15, 20 miles an hour down the road. It's yeah. quite, it's frankly terrifying. Totally. It's terrible. It's like, you know, if you go on a ride at, you know, some amusement park, you know, you have all these signs saying you're putting your life in danger and, you know, you're okay with that. And maybe you've signed a waiver to get in. Like you should be doing 10 times that in order to get on a bike, a bicycle in New York City. Right. But certainly we don't want to force people to do 10 times that just to bike around because that is such a great mode of transportation. Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, my experience in the cruise vehicle is it's extremely conservative and safe, especially when it comes to bikers. It actually really surprised me. Uh, there are many maneuvers where it was far more conservative than I would be as a driver. So what was funny is I would feel more comfortable biking around an autonomous vehicle than uh, than a you know human driven vehicle. Yeah, it's my own personal uh, experience. So if you design something that way, I think there's a large probability that you could then expand bike lanes, uh, have people feel safer as they're going around with these micro mobility options. It seems promising. So Darren, Dave said that changing a single ride sharing vehicle to an electric vehicle has the same emissions impact as three people replacing their personal vehicles with electric vehicles. And that's based on a study that uses Uber and Lyft data. Lyft has committed to becoming 100% electric by 2030. And I was wondering, are they planning to do that by only allowing people who own electric vehicles to drive? Are they going to buy their own EVs? Are they going to make a partnership with, you know, a, an EV company of some kind? How will this be achieved, do you think? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think there's a lot of routes to try to get us there. First of all, the 
data around replacing a rideshare vehicle with an electric vehicle is is directionally correct. I've I've looked at that study and I've run some of my own numbers, and it's true. There's a huge impact because these vehicles do travel more miles. In terms of how you're going to get drivers to be on EVs, that's a really interesting challenge because most, you know, to date, most of the customers of electric vehicles are relatively affluent because these are more expensive vehicles. And what's interesting is even if over the long term, the total cost of ownership after taking into account charging, taking into account lower maintenance costs, et cetera, even if that total cost of ownership is less than operating an ICE vehicle, that upfront cost can be prohibitive for people who have lower socioeconomic resources. So some of these companies I know are exploring financing models. There are a variety of startups that have also cropped up to say, hey, you know, we can go and lease you an EV from day one and you only have to pay similar as you would for a normal lease. What's interesting, and I don't know if most people are aware of this, a lot of the drivers on Uber and Lyft, um, they actually rent their vehicles. They don't own their vehicles. There are companies that have been set up specifically to lease maybe some nicer vehicles for them to uh, take their customers on. So I think a similar model could potentially work where a company handles the upfront procurement, the maintenance, the even the charging perhaps, and basically helps finance this option for Uber and Lyft drivers. That's really interesting. I, I didn't know that, but you know, most most drivers actually rent their vehicles. And the other thing that you mentioned that you know companies will crop up to sort of address this need, I think, speaks to a really exciting phenomenon that we're, as you know, to your point, we're starting to see, and we're probably going to see a lot more of, which is all kinds of new businesses cropping up to address the you know temporary, but also maybe more systemic needs that the transition to clean energies will present to to the economy. So really, really interesting dynamics going on there. Um, well, I think with that, we'll, we'll conclude it for today's episode. If you're interested in checking out our other episodes about decarbonizing transportation, watching our videos, or signing up for our newsletter to be notified of live podcast tapings and new releases, visit our website at climatenow.com. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, email us at contact at climatenow.com or tweet at us at we are climate now. We hope you'll join us for our next conversation.